This is What Comes Next, a show about the technologies that will shape your future. I'm Amy Dickens. I'm Rob Kellner. And I'm Kwaku Akamensa. On this episode of What Comes Next, we're speaking to Oliver Armitage, co-founder and chief scientific officer at BIOS. BIOS wants to replace medication, so things like pills and injections, with software delivered through an implant to the nervous system. So, Ollie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. How is life under lockdown? Uh, life under lockdown is interesting. I actually live directly opposite our office, so I've moved about <laughs> 40 meters across the street. Um, but the environment, well, I've moved in distance, a very small distance. I've moved the environment a huge amount. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so you can kind of wave to your old life. Yeah, I can I can wave at my old desk and and when I forget notes and things I can go get them very easily, which is very useful. But uh, yeah, generally, just sort of getting used to interacting with everyone all the time through um, video conferencing, as we are now. Yeah. Well, so we're we're here to uh, talk with you about neural interfaces. And just for our listeners who maybe don't know, neural interfaces are devices that interact with our nervous system. And they can be placed inside or outside the body, and they are designed to restore functions or change what we are able to do. Is that a correct interpretation? Uh, yeah. I think sometimes <laughs> the definition of neural interfaces does get a bit broad, when people, especially in some of the wearables. Things that don't necessarily really ever actually record a neural signal get called neural interfaces. Right. But um, outside of that, it was pretty accurate, yeah. So neural interfaces are not exactly new. We've had things around since, I believe, the 1950s, 1960s, like uh, cochlear implants for hearing loss and pacemakers and things like that. Um, You guys are doing something quite different in how your interface interacts with the body. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're adding to this field? Sure. So BIOS is developing um, full-stack neural interfaces, uh, primarily to um, decode and encode signals going between the brain and body for the purpose of treating health conditions. Historically, neural interfaces and the ones I think people think of are what people would call BCIs, um, brain-computer interfaces, things that go into parts of the cortex and are used for cognitive control of prosthetic arms and learning and and uh, wheelchairs and these kinds of things. Um, but Neural interfaces really actually have a much broader definition. The nervous system goes throughout the entire body. It's not just the brain. Um, And tapping into all the rest of the nervous system lets you treat hundreds of millions different people with chronic diseases um, and not just do these kind of like quite headline um, brain machine interfaces. So what what you're dealing with the peripheral nervous system then? We deal with the parts of the nervous system that control health conditions. So that is primarily the peripheral nervous system, but it does touch on parts of the central nervous system, like the spinal cord and brainstem. We don't at the moment look at cortical interfaces, which is where you would do sort of where your sort of conscious thought happens and where you would do something like a BCI. A BCI is... A brain computer interface of the of the style that you would have seen in headlines and TechCrunch articles for the last 20 years. So can you tell us a little bit about how your interface is designed and how it interacts with the nervous system then? Yeah, so our neural interface really has sort of three core parts. Um, there's a standardized hardware interface that's implanted and connected directly onto the nerves that um, sort of records signals and allows us to put new signals back into the nervous system by stimulating. Um, There's a sort of a software 
um, interpreter, which is sort of an AI powered, it sort of reads the neural language and converts it into something that um, the machine can use and make actions on and then converts back the other way. So a sort of an encoder and a decoder. Um, and then there's the sort of connection back to the whole healthcare system. When you have a remote device like this that's managing a certain condition, um, you want to be able to not only report back on the patient's status, but also update their update their treatment, um, change their dosage, things like that. Okay, so you've got the um, kind of like, I guess, translation aspect, which is, or the reading aspect, which is reading the data, and then the, the kind of the translation layer, which is interpreting that and figuring out what that data is communicating. Yep. And then you've got the sort of the healthcare integration. Yeah, so so that layer is is then um, is taking that information and being able to code it in a way that you can feed it back to the body and the body will respond. Yeah, and what's really important about that is that all of that encompasses a neural interface. Sometimes mm. people will use neural interface quite narrowly on you know just the electrode or just the sort of optical reader that's being used to connect to a nerve, um, and uh -huh. really that whole platform, that whole operating system on which you can deploy like applications which can be treatments is is the whole neural interface stack. Great. Can we uh, talk about, I just want to talk about neural data because that sounds absolutely fascinating. So what does a neural megabyte look like? From a neuroscience perspective, um, there's a sort of quite attractive analogy in that um, neurons fire in what is almost quite a binary way. So an action potential, which you'll have heard of, is sort of a one, and then a, a lack of an action potential could be thought of as a zero. So there's quite a sort of attractive way of thinking about neural data transmission, almost as though it is binary data. Obviously, that meaning of that binary data is not then mixed up into bytes in the way that you can think of um, computer transmission data over something like USB. Um, it's, it's very different, and there's a lot of different models of what that and this sort of rate encoding and all these kinds of things are different sort of fundamental neuroscience principles of what those trains of action potentials mean. But it, it, there's a sort of quite attractive relation to computer transmission data. There. So, so what is um, in terms of the actual information that a sort of neuroelectric signal that moves around the body, could, could the information that it conveys, how does how does it impact kind of the, the I think it's called the, the biomarker, is that right? The sort of the physiological variable that changes. How does it tell that physiological, that biomarker what to do? Right. So um, let me give you an example. A, um, in, there is a stretch sensitive protein. So there's a protein in the wall of your artery that um, responds to stretching. So when your artery expands, um, it fires. And when your artery contracts, it stops firing. So through every heartbeat cycle, your artery sort of pulses slightly because the pre there's a pressure wave going through it. And that is seen as a, as a sort of firing and then drop off and firing and then drop off going back to the brain. And that signal, um, that's a sort of biomarker of blood pressure. So with that signal, if you pick that up, you can detect when there's a sudden blood pressure drop from, say, standing up. And that's called orthostatic drop. If you ever feel faint when you stand up too quickly, that's because you have this sort of loss of blood pressure as you stand up. And naturally, your body detects that signal. That signal is going from your artery wall up to your brain. And your brainstem is then 
making your heart beat harder within the next cycle. So in half a second, it makes your heart beat harder in response to that biomarker in order to stop you feeling faint. And in people with diseases, that pathway goes wrong. So a neural biomarker can be detecting that orthostatic drop event and um, and then you can uh, sort of respond in real time accordingly. I guess what I'm getting at is how do we, how do you influence or change or or edit that that sort of that signal? Because it sounds like what you're doing is you know you're receiving this data, you're seeing the signal. Sometimes, like you say, the that sort of that feedback mechanism, the movement of those signals can go wrong. And what you want to do is intercept and edit that signal. So, can you tell us a bit more about that process? So yeah, these biomarkers naturally flow around the nervous system in both directions, going from all over your body, from every one of your organs and tissues, going back to your brain, providing your brain with information about the current state of all of the parts of your body. And then there are sort of outflow signals, sort of actions the brain is taking, which is, I think, more what people consciously think of. So there's a neural signal going, the brain initiates a motion, it flows down a nerve, it terminates in a muscle and the arm moves, or it terminates in the diaphragm and the diaphragm contracts and you breathe in. So these kinds of signals flow around the body all the time. And as you said, some in diseases, often, sometimes those signals have gone wrong. Um, and actually, in many chronic diseases, you can detect their onset in the aberrance of those neural signals before you ever see any clinical indication. So sometimes you want to change the neural, the natural neural signal, and sometimes you want to leave it alone because it's doing the right thing. It's only very occasionally that it's going wrong. And so you need to be able to detect it in real time, and then you can apply an electrical stimulus to the nerve in order to either add new information or block out existing information. So if there is an aberrant signal, which there is too much of, which is causing um, a negative health effect. So that can be, for instance, in certain types of diabetes, your brain is overdriving your pancreas in order to make up for poor arterial blood flow and poor glucose perfusion. And it's overdriving your pancreas. And over a large period of time, that can result in sort of pancreas failure and long-term diabetes. So there's a, that's an over-signaling case. And you want to be able to block that signal by applying a sort of electrical nerve block. Um, and in other cases, there's a lack of a signal, something is not transmitted, and you need to be able to know it's happened and add a new signal in. And there you're trying to stimulate the nerve to make and to add in new biomarkers so that the body can respond accordingly. So the variable here, is it the sort of, is it the, the voltage and the frequency of the neuroelectric signals? Though at a, at a really fundamental, like right down at the hardware level, it's a voltage, it's a, you know, a current and a, a current and a voltage deployed over time. Um, the, the real, um, core understanding though is in what action you're trying to create and you use different current and voltage parameters to block a nerve than you use to stimulate a nerve and or to stimulate one set of nerves compared to a different set of nerves within the same bundle for the situation where for example the pancreas is overproducing how easy is it to interpret the signals and kind of translate that to different individuals because i'm assuming that um like part of the battle is people are responding differently to different things and you're using AI to kind of interpret those signals. But when you're programming this to to translate to different people, how does that work? Yeah, so uh, that, that's partly right. And there's, um, there's really two parts to that answer. There's a commonality okay. in how neurons fire. So um, all nerve cells throughout the body predominantly have the same firing method. They have variations in size and speed. But um, yeah. 
they they all use the same underlying mechanism, the same cellular mechanism, and mm-hmm. um, so there is a there is a commonality of which nerves go to which locations and how those nerves fire, and then there's a difference in how those might be physically arranged person to person. So you might okay. pick up the same signal on a in a different person, you might pick up the same signal um, in a different location on a different part of your um, sensor array, or in a or you might see a different um, version of it. But it, there is an underlying commonality to that. And so the what we do at BIOS is we do these sort of large scale discovery um, uh, experiments. We do we collect vast amounts of neural data and we process through all of it and across multiple subjects and um, through through uh, through a lot of different time points. And, and so we can find the commonality and we can find the differences within that complexity um, using AI. And the reason that we can exist now as a company is we're at the point where you can process these huge scales of data. Um, neural data has become an AI experiment and a data handling experiment rather than a sort of single trial, 10 minutes in a lab with some scientists and then three weeks on a computer with a group of unhappy postdocs. It sounds like in, in tapping into this information, it sounds like you're hacking a phone mask trying to identify a single phone call. You are trying to isolate out you're trying to isolate out very small signals that are related to specific diseases, but also all of those other signals tell you a lot of information. They tell you about the whole homeostasis of the patient, mm. and all of those things are important. You, you can't really ever treat one disease on its own. You need to think about everything all at the same time. So it's, it's actually very beneficial to have all this sort of what feels like ancillary information. Of course. About... Yeah, because because if you've got um, a, uh, a, a, a neural signature um that looks like that the heart is working too fast but you don't take into account the bmi of the patient and that you know mm. the they have to work harder in order just to walk um at a normal pace then you could misread so there's an interpretation piece in here a huge interpretation piece that has to draw on i mean how, what what kind of data are you drawing on to to give context to what you're finding there are a lot of different sources of context from the neural information itself, associated physiological metrics, um, and also just sort of data from things like uh, much, you know, sort of things like wearables also tell you a huge amount. Mm. Um, they tell you, you know, how far someone's moving, which tells you something about like how far, like whether or not their cardiac system should be working very hard at that at that time. Um, and it's for this reason that everything is hugely interconnected and that, um, any specific algorithm that's responding to any specific signal is really just one treatment that we build this as a platform approach. Um, any Because you're bringing in all these signals together, then your choice of which one you're responding to in which way is the treatment you're giving, but all of the underlying technology is the same. And that means that the treatment for diabetes and the treatment for hypertension are probably exactly the same device and 95% of the same software. All the underlying operating system is the same, but the application is different. So how does this actually, like, how do you, how does a body physically interact with the interface? I mean, you must have to have some kind of implant or something that can be receiving the data and giving data. Yeah, so a a patient, an example patient would have a device that looks much like a pacemaker. Instead of being Mm -hmm. wired down an artery and into their heart or down a vein and into their heart, specifically, it would be sort of wired up through their neck and onto some of the nerves, the larger trunk nerves going from their brain out to their organs. But 
um, from a top level, the sort of the physical device may not look that dissimilar to a pacemaker, but under underlying and underneath, it's uh, sort of this AI-powered neural interface doing something quite different. So, the, so, so primarily, this is a, this is about kind of um, intercepting and editing information from the brain to the extremities, organs, other parts of the body. Um, does the same technology or would the same principles work taking information from the from the limbs from other parts of the body and sending it back to the brain so one of the first applications of this and one of the largest historical areas for neural interfaces is in neuroprosthetics so limb control for amputees and people with paralysis and things like that um so yeah it's exactly the same technology stack that you can use for almost the same technology stack it's been a physical different physical locations it's on a different set of nerves but um, the interfacing is almost the same as you use for controlling prosthetic limbs. That's really cool. Can you talk about how it's used to control prosthetic limbs? Sure. So in that kind of model, um, you want to take your neural interface, which um, you've engineered to connect to the nervous system, and you want to record motion signals and use those to control an external device rather than using them to control an organ. It's really the main difference. It's just the target of your control algorithm is um, is in this case a physical robotic object rather than um, a part of your body's own system. And really what we need here is um, we need this kind of fundamentally new way of approaching chronic diseases, including neuroprosthetics like amputation. Amputation or, or limb loss is, is, is one of those applications. Things like drugs can be very ineffective or very um, expensive and um, instead this really just operates it's just like a different vector for controlling large parts um, of the body and is hence just and for a lot of sort of scale and um, and really kind of underlying underlying economics reasons as well as scientific reasons uh, it's just a better way of eradicating or managing large parts of the chronic disease portfolio yeah, I remember seeing a, a talk you gave where you explained like how much of chronic disease management is is incredibly just time intensive. It's very manual, like you say. It's, it involves a lot of drugs uh, and just yeah, a lot of time doing physical things. And it sounds like this could this could effectively digitize or, and automate a lot of that care straight away. So there, there's there's obviously a huge variety of conditions to to look at. Are you right now focused on? tackling a sort of specific condition and coding for that? Or are you thinking much more about creating the the platform that other people can can develop sort of APIs and plugins for? Yeah. So we're focused on on building a platform, getting out, getting it out there for the first treating like the first patients with sort of a neural interface technology in um, 2021 and and having it in a platform um approach such that like a third party can put a neural application treatment on it by about 2023. And that's really sort of the the journey we're on. If you're so, let's say you're, I, I you know I suffer from diabetes. How would my uh, care change if by 2023 there is this sort of way of of using biosystem technology to treat the condition instead? The real difference for the patient um, and for the healthcare system, and this is actually something the healthcare system is currently grappling with in our sort of remote lockdown world, is that. Uh, all these patients who've had procedures or need follow-ups can't have them because they're no longer urgent care. Um, and they're sort of suddenly thinking, oh, we need we need other ways of um, managing our patients remotely. And there's something that people always say, yeah, we we would like to have that. But now, now it's become essential with um, government and state-enforced lockdowns. But um, 
for a single patient uh, who's receiving a therapy like this to treat their disease, um, I think we have a really good model in looking at what's happened to patients who are now on pacemakers to treat heart arrhythmia rather than on sort of beast blockers or other cardio drugs. Mm. They no longer think about their condition, right? That's the important thing. A patient with diabetes today thinks about their diabetes every day, multiple times a day. They manually take a blood sugar measurement. They have to look up in a table how much insulin they're going to take. Even if the answer is nothing, they still have to have thought about it and thought right. about their chronic condition. There's a mental burden that's, that takes on their on their care every day. And what a pacemaker has done for someone with heart arrhythmia is it's meant they no longer even have to think about remembering to take their drug because the device is just constantly keeping their heart at a certain pacing rate. Now, pacemakers are um, uh, are improving and they're, and they're they, they've, they've got other ways to go, and there's reasons why they could be more responsive and more real-time in the ways that uh, BIOS's neural interfaces are designed to be. But um, at a fundamental level, what those kinds of devices do or what these kinds of devices do for neural interfaces and chronic diseases is, is take the burden of care away from the patient um, and away from a sort of repeat checkup with the healthcare um, system and move it onto a system where the device is doing the the second to second, minute to minute, day to day management, and the clinician can take sort of the important decisions about like, do we need to change the sort of dosage of your therapy in the long term? And so, for for, for diabetes, you're talking about moving from from um, you know multiple multiple times a day, extracting blood, checking blood glucose levels, or using the sort of the the more Bluetooth, the more current kind of Bluetooth tap. Um, injecting insulin, you're taking, you're talking about removing all that. All that becomes digital. Yeah, I mean, diabetes is a, is a really interesting one. It's actually one of the more difficult, um, uh, one of the more difficult chronic diseases to look at with neural interfaces. Some of the sort of cardiac neural pathways have been being researched for 10, 20 years. Yeah. One of the things I'm most excited, one of the more recent developments I'm most excited about is that um, a group of French researchers mapped some of the nerves which control different subfunctions of pancreatic activity um, at a, a sort of a biological level for the first time, sort of uh, earlier this year. And and that we're starting to get the right bits of research so that we know the underlying biology, so that diabetes is also becoming in scope for these types of treatments. I mean, some of the most sort of expensive and difficult sort of most burdensome chronic conditions in the world are um are targets for neuromodulation therapies it's al already sees a huge amount of uh, attraction in chronic pain management um there's uh, a lot that can be done obviously as I, I sort of mentioned in various cardiovascular conditions whether it's heart failure hypertension some of the more rare diseases in in um, cardiac conditions that are like driven by neural signaling problems um, can be controlled with things like this. Um, I think diabetes will be in scope, probably a bit more of a combination therapy. It will still need like some addition of um, something like insulin, but that can definitely be done with things like insulin pumps. Now we're seeing those can be done automatically. Um, that some of the other sort of, you know, not sexy, but things like urinary incontinence are entirely in scope for this. It's an entire, wow. entirely neural mechanism of control. You have a sort of a dual gate on your uh, on your bladder, one that's conscious and one that's unconscious, and both right. need to trigger for you to be able to to void. And that's the um, and so you, uh, that urinary incontinence is in scope. Um, yeah, lot lo lots of respiratory conditions. What about things like panic attacks, which are not really not really physical at all? They're much more just a a response to adrenaline or yeah. Like I mean, uh, a panic attack or sort of you know. If we go back to sort of our 
basics of or like our sort of neuroanatomy of the peripheral yeah. nervous system. It's split in half, right? Um, you have your parasympathetic and you have your sympathetic. And the sympathetic is your fight or flight response. It's your sort of like, it's your, it's your, that's firing when you're having a panic attack. It's also firing when yeah. you're having a heart attack. It's firing when you're like running really fast. And then you have your parasympathetic, which, and um, this is where you start to get into uh, some of the world of like the holistic therapies. I think people who yoga, who do a lot of yoga know about their vagus nerve. They've heard about it. Mm. They know what it is and they know that it should be in a, they should have a good one. Um, and <laughs> that's because the, 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 the vagus nerve uh, is the sort of major trunk of the parasympathetic, which is the half that sort of like, it slows you down. It slows your heart rate. It um, lowers your, your hormone responses, all those kinds of things. So um, uh, in that regard, you have two very different approaches, and we're already seeing things like um, trials for migraine therapies and um, anxiety via parasympathetic stimulation. Those have already those some of those clinical trials have already happened. It's a huge yeah. amount of scope for them to be improved. They're not in like um, wide scale use yet. Um, and, and, and being able to do sort of bi-directional recording and real-time control is will be very important for that. But uh, we're already seeing some clinical experimental use in in a lot of um, mental health conditions. Fascinating. I, I was wondering that I, again. I saw some, uh, a talk you gave where you mentioned the the amount of data that was sort of traveling down the spine was something like a gigabyte a second, which is obviously an extraordinary amount of data for mm. for um, for a sort of a computer to process, particularly when I imagine it's so complexly layered and so on. Um, and so I wondered if you know if this technology or how easily this technology could be applied to something sort of in as well in the brain not in the periphery of the body but in the brain itself like a migraine um but it sounds like actually that's not too much of a, a sort of, there's there's no additional complexity or not much additional complexity there um yeah so the it, it, it's about um yeah it's around a thousand megawatts a second coming up and down the spine all the time um and the there there are sort of there are two different versions of that answer you um our technology stack can be used in the brain for neural, for sort of cortical neural data if you wanted it to. Um, we primarily engineer it right now for peripheral activity because we think that's where the largest impact and the largest opportunity can be for um, helping a large number of patients and really getting things out to um, a lot of mass, mass use. Um, the other version is that you don't necessarily have to be in the brain to influence the brain. All these nerves we're talking about are going up into the brain stem and influencing those pathways. So um, with peripheral stimulators that are on nerves in the neck, on nerves even in the wrist sometimes, you can have um, brain effects on things like migraines and, um, and anxiety. Oh, really? Fascinating. You just you, you you stimulate and you influence those um, what are called afferent pathways, pathways going from the periphery up to the brain, um, and you you add information into certain regions. So, for instance, um, one good way of thinking about this is that um, a very simple model of migraine, um, and this is a massive oversimplification, but to to try and sort of make it a little bit approachable. A sure. migraine in a migraine, you can see what's called a cortical spreading depression, right? So all over the cortex. Um, all of your neurons pretty much simultaneously fire less. So that the depression in that case is a lowering reduction in firing rate. And that's pretty universally seen um, in migraine onset when they've done clinical studies in things like fMRI. Um, what some of these pathways have targeted is stimulation during when this cortical spreading depression onsets. If you stimulate and you, and you bring that activity back up artificially, some people have shown success with with um, arresting a migraine or halting a migraine that's onsetting. And, and that's some of the most important um, 
one of the most important patient aspects of this, I think, is that these neural effects are happening all the time in your body and they're always happening. Like you, you never have, you never have perception of them. You never have conscious conscious idea that these neural signals are moving around you. And, um, and normally they precede the onset of the clinical symptoms, which you recognize and you notice as an individual. So in these kinds of conditions, when you're reacting to nervous signals in real time, you can normally, and there've been lots of examples of people being able to react before the patient is ever aware of their Condition. So, for instance, there's an epilepsy device on the market now, which reacts to an onset of an epileptic seizure with a brain stimulation. And those patients report that they don't know the seizures ever started because the, the, the brain activity is dampened down in the seizure region before they really knew they were about to have a seizure. Wow. And so, that's amazing. Wow, seriously. <laughs> and yeah. that's a really important factor of patient, right? You, that's, that's on this idea of like taking away the cognitive burden. You're, you're, you're treating something... At like a sub, a sub perception level, right? And I, I guess that's amazing. And I guess you're talk, what you're talking about is because when the symptoms arrive, then the suffering starts, right? So if you can intercept something before the symptoms arrive, which I guess is the end of the chain of bio, the yeah. end of biological sequence anyway, then yeah. by the time you've noticed, a lot of things help. have gone wrong. Right, absolutely, exactly, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, which yeah. is not a great uh, sort of setup for dealing with things. But wow, that's exactly. Fascinating. So it. it it's much more proactive then, as opposed to taking drugs for something which is very reactive. Exactly, it's, yeah. it's considerably proactive, and um, it and it can uh, what what these kinds of what this kind of strategy for treating chronic disease does is it proactively manages the condition in this kind of mm. like sub-perception way, in a way where you're sort of trying to stop it from ever progressing. You're trying to stop it from ever being in the like the severe state. And that can mean the patient doesn't know it's happening, which is great. It takes the, the burden and the sort of the sort of real world impact for them away. But it can also have a huge effect on slowing disease progression because you're sort of halting it from ever getting into those like severe edge cases, which uh, which sort of cause long term damage. I imagine that it also has a secondary effect on the kind of mental burden of carers as well, because you've got... Um, like for 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 let's say for healthcare professionals, they are much more able to control the way a patient is being treated. They're not relying on that patient taking their drugs at the right time or taking the right amount or anything like that. So it kind of eases that burden as well. When you take drugs, um, you're like the the calculation that's being done by the um, pharmacist. But when you're given uh, you know, you're told to take, you know, two two pills three times a day. Is they're basically saying like how much um how much mass do I need to give you, which is going to be cleared out of your body slowly over the next, you know, six to eight to twelve hours. And how often do I need to top you up and how much do I need to give you? So that this kind of like spiky pattern of drug comes in and then gently wears off and drug comes in and gently wears off keeps you on average in like the middle of what they want the primary operating zone to be. Right. That's the kind of that, that calculation yeah. being that's a that's you know, pharmacy. And they're doing that very well to try and like keep you in this like tight zone where the drug is the most effective. Um but the point of that is that a you have the same amount of drug in you during that whole period so if you choose to do something different like go for a run during a period when like you're taking beta blockers to lower your blood pressure then you're still taking beta blockers and and it's going to make your running more difficult it's going to be harder for your body to make your heart rate go up um 
and also so your treatment can't respond in real time and mm. there's this they're also making this trade-off of like well if i tell them to take one tenth of a pill every hour they're not going to do it right so yeah. they're trying to <laughs> sure. they're trying to optimize not only for like keeping you in the zone but for what you're actually going to do not for ne what necessarily is the best treatment and, and what this means is as you sort of alluded to is that both for the patient and also for the the doctor that's caring the new prescription is delivered via an algorithm it's a software update it's a setting change so <laughs> that's, you, you that's say like, so cool <laughs> so it's you know it's an over-the-air like cost-efficient treatment update and in doing so you kind of you you access all of the you sort of inherit all of the cost of scale of like software as a service type, like mm. like delivery, right? It's incredible the way the way that you describe um, drug usage. There, it makes it sound like such a blunt instrument, um, particularly when compared to the the economies of scale that you've just described. You know, every single part of that process that you you just gone into, there are cost savings and effort savings and um consciousness savings to be uh to have to be had right mm -hmm. you could all, all of all of this seems to be um moving towards a way more passive um experience of, of having one of these uh disorders and and that's that's just on the delivery side like the 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 problems the pharmaceutical industry is having in inventing new drugs mm. is it's hugely well documented the cost of the cost of um uh of drug discovery is has uh, i think it's, it's called e-room's law it's, it's you know it's like it's like moore's law backwards right um <laughs> I, th I think it's it i can't remember the exact number it doubles something like uh every 10 years or it doubles every 10 years to develop a new drug or something approximately like that it means that right now it's like 2.6 billion dollars to bring a new on average a new drug to market um and all of that means that there's this sort of these reducing economies of scale when it's coming in pharmaceutical. And what the pharmaceutical industry is really good at is distributing widely into a large healthcare system and a large number of patients. And that's not to be um, dismissed. And there's a huge amount of experience there that is incredibly useful for someone like us who's delivering um, therapy via an algorithm. But uh, just it's just a fundamentally different unit economics of the therapy itself on both its discovery and its uh, delivery. Can you talk for a second about side effects? Presumably, uh, one of the major um, one of the major advantages of moving away from drugs is, like you say, you don't have the kind of spikes in the amount uh, that you have in your bloodstream in order to kind of even out over time, and therefore you're removing any of the side effects that are caused by those spikes as well, and also the kind of volatile nature of how much of the drug is in your system. Um, that alone, it seems like it could be a huge benefit. But, uh, you know, is, is there anything we're kind of missing there on the side effects side or perhaps some that, that would be caused by the, the use of your system? I mean, when it comes to neural interfaces, like the, the fundamental principle is to stimulate and then also the fundamental principle we work on is that you stimulate and then you respond to the effect of that right so you you optimize what your 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 dose you understand what your dosage did on a sort of second to maybe minute time scale sure. so um your that's the check speed at which you update your dosage and so you can you're really optimizing not only for therapeutic efficacy but for side effect minimization over that time scale um and that means that you know when you first the patient first comes in um you can do what's called, what's called dose triage right so it's like setting the right dose finding the right effective dose for that patient very quickly and you can do it very quickly if you have very quick real-time feedback like a neural biomarker um and that's the um, 
that's the sort of like the fundamental principle when it comes to uh pharmaceutical side effects and sort of neural side effects there's there's really like two almost completely different ways of looking at side effects in this in one way you can say that okay i'm treat i'm stimulating this nerve um it's going to a target that i want to uh affect but it might also be changing something else in the body but those nerves are also grouped up and on the other side when you're reducing you know, blood pressure, you probably also want to reduce breathing rate at the same time. And so because things are like functionally grouped in the nervous system, things that cause similar sets of effects in similar organs are physically just like functionally physically next to each other. And the neuron cells are closer together. Um, it means that the kinds of side effects you have tend to be more, um, beneficial and you you like they're not they're 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 technically a side effects because they're not specifically about the organ you're targeting but they also tend to be in sort of co-located organs that have useful useful group effects um so like a holistic side effect yeah and you, you sort of you sort of see that in that like the some of the neurostimulators that have um already been approved as clinical treatments there are Vagus nerve stimulation is one of those examples. Vagus nerve stimulation, which is the, and it's the same treatment, stimulating the same nerve with almost the same electrical pattern in basically the same place, is approved for all, for epilepsy and for migraine and for rheumatoid arthritis and for Crohn's disease. And you sort of wow. see like it's the same, it's almost the same, and they're just sort of picking which answer they're looking at. And so a lot of those side effects are all like beneficial treatments, but just the way that a side effect is then defined from a sort of FDA and regulatory perspective. Sometimes those side effects can be very um, not negative. So yeah, I, I, I can't really avoid reading about Neuralink um, out on the scene. So mm. I'm just wondering what the differences are, what approach you guys are taking versus Elon Musk's approach. Um, yeah, so Neuralink, uh, I'm, I'm really glad companies like that exist. It's really... Um, validating that we're at like the right point of time in this market um as as an enthusiast in the area i'm i'm ecstatic that neurotechnology is like at a point where like we can exist and on on the day that Neuralink was announced we were um standing on stage <laughs> at y combinator in silicon valley showing neural data recording um from one of our like first live streaming subjects on the other side of the country Saying we've already done this yeah we, it was it was it was um it was some uh sort of very serendipitous timing we were we were we were showing off live neural recording experiments chronically at the same time as that wait but why article announcing neural <laughs> came out um but uh, no I, i'm very glad companies like that exist and it's um it's great that they're that they're there and that they're focusing on these like ultra high bandwidth very cortical so you know the top top layer of your brain doing conscious yeah. thought um type regions um and but for, for BIOS, we're focused on where we can deliver impact in what is honestly hundreds of millions of patients, right? Some of the biggest chronic mm-hmm. diseases in the world. And we think that applying these kind of neural interfaces technologies theirs first has both the biggest impact on us and humans, um, but also gives you some of the best pathway towards like being able to use this technology in like a large scale, safe and effective way. Um, and, and making it safe and effective is paramount. So, I mean, I think it's it's great that Neuralink are... Um, exist and that they're working on these like very cortical applications but it's a very different space to us 
So one of your ambitions is to build the sort of standardized platform to kind of, you know, to, to, to create treatments, but also, I guess, more generally to sort of encode information into or, or to sort of combine external information and internal neurologic information, right? So there's mm. ramifications for that well beyond healthcare. And, and I think into things like potentially sort of neural simulation. And so I wonder, you know, do you do you see that being a possibility? Because it seems like it, it, this this becomes a sort of a, a, a potentially a blank tool once once the standardization is there and it's online and people and there's a sort of dev kit for it, right? People can just run. So you know, does, does that by neural simulation do you mean like kind of like immersive level neural VR type thing? Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking of I'm thinking of the Matrix is honestly my inspiration for this question. Have you been watching <laughs> Augmented Carbon recently? Is that the? Uh, I, I, I'm a big fan of Alter Carbon. Big, big fan. Yeah. Um, in fact, most of this, most of this sort of section comes from basically what what sci-fi <laughs> I liked most recently. But but no, seriously, I mean, it, it seems like you're tapping into the potential to influence the you know what the nervous system experiences effectively, right? So I'm wondering, you know, is is both that a potential kind of long-term application for this and, and also even nearer term when when it's online and there are you know people that can kind of develop solutions for it is sort of entertainment or at least sort of you know some something in that realm possible i mean there's a um we're we're focused on on health conditions and honestly beyond like the first health condition and the second health condition and you know the third fourth fifth that a partner makes on our platform we're yeah. we're focused on one plus three and one plus four and and you know the same the same device with stimulation trying to sort of simultaneously use these signals to control this part of the body and these use signals to control this part of the body so you get like a combined treatment or oh, sorry yeah. a, a two treatments out of a single device or more treatments and so um for us that's kind of like the like the longer term build pathway is like you know start to be able to optimize homeostasis of of you know all these systems which is like total health total body homeostasis health mm. um as i said before when you have cardiovascular disease the only your cardiovascular system is not the only thing that's diseased in your body it's just the one that you've got a label for and so um all of these th- all of your systems together can interact and interplay and being able to a sort of finely tune all of them and optimize them into the sort of the healthiest state as a as a group is um is really where where we think about building those long-term that huge long-term value on the platform mm. um when it comes to external users and sort of third parties there's um we we are explicitly trying to build our technology to to empower third-party health applications um there's a huge sort of regulatory question around then getting that approved for using it for a non-health condition right i think that right now you know right now if you go to there's no there's no sort of neurosurgeon in the world that will give you a brain implant because you want one Mm. um (laughs) and um and 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 that's because the um the frameworks the sort of the regulatory if if it was possible inside a regulatory framework at least one of them would Um, absolutely but 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 the reason there are none is because the regulatory frameworks are very clear that that's not okay um and so i think that some of those kinds of applications are going to require you know much longer term sea changes in the way sort of augmented technology ethics are really considered and Mm. so you know we, we think really strongly about making third parties for health applications but like I could give it to a third party who said I wanted to use this for, you know, augmented learning or or or, or VR or something. But uh, they're they're really never going to. And we're uh, I don't see how in the immediate ten twenty 
near future, they get approval to do that, to give someone those kinds of surgeries for non, um, uh, yeah, for where they're not delivering a health benefit, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess also, I mean, there's sort of that interesting line between sort of um, normative and additive healthcare, right? Is that, mm. you know, is that if you keep turning the dial at some point, a, a the uh, alleviation of a, of a condition becomes the addition of an ability. Yes, and so I guess that's so. something that is that something that you wonder about, worry about. I mean that that particular sort of you know that particular dialogue, almost exactly as you put it, like the alleviation of a um, disease becomes the addition of an ability. Um, I think in is most obvious and most clearly going to happen in something like neuroprosthetics, mm. where um, the you know there are already things that certain prosthetics do that people can't do. Right. right, like absolutely. they're not better in all ways, and, and in huge numbers of ways they're not. And I, I don't mean to try and sort of outplay the the, the current advances in limb control, but um, and sensation. But there are certain things that prosthetic limbs can do, which me, which mean that that person has an ability that a what we would call able-bodied or otherwise, um, you know, not someone without a prosthetic limb can't yeah, do. Sure. For instance, they can have a limb, a wrist that can rotate through 360 degrees, right? right? They can unlock the key in their door. And it's just, and, and things like that are like, they sort of feel like fun party tricks, right? For the, at the, at the moment, but they're sort of a sign that, yeah, those pieces of technology do make those people who are sometimes thought of as disabled, more abled. Um, and, and it's very exciting to be able to build technology that will, that will sort of enable that. Um, the, I think the real ethical question that we were talking about though, is if you, if you don't, if you don't have the disability first, then how, then, then getting, you know, you can't, you, it, you can't, um, having a surgery, no matter how simple it is, it's always sort of considered as like a negative on the, on the ethics balance sheet, right? right you have always right. had something you've always been cut and the moment you've been cut, that's like a, you've had a negative effect applied to you. And so the mm. positive effect has to outweigh that. And, that, and that's right. the, you know, in the, in the medical ethics, the great scales in the sky that, <laughs> that that's sort of almost philosophically based on. Um, mm. You have to, you have to balance that scales. And, uh, and if you don't have some, if you don't have something which is negatively affecting your daily life, that you need cured in order to go through that detriment to have it fixed, then then there's that's where our current framework doesn't really even provide a pathway to augment like additive, purely additive type devices. Well, Ollie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. It's been um, uh, very interesting to chat about. Neural interfaces are always a fun topic. I'm very lucky that I get to work on them every day. So It sounds like incredibly worthwhile work and um, yeah, just such an exciting field. So thank you for obviously putting so much of your time and effort into it. I, 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 I can't imagine not doing it personally, but um, and, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I think everyone at BIOS feels very motivated by that work. And that's really nice for me to see as a founder is not just to be motivated by it myself, but to see a huge group of people also get motivated by it. And so I find that very rewarding. Just before we go, the all important question, where can listeners go to find out more about BIOS? So we're at BIOS Health on Twitter or www.bios.health, or I believe there'll be some uh, links in the show notes. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. I think that was probably the most outlandish technology we've had on what comes next so far a company that's trying to replace medicine with essentially software mind-blowing and 
certainly one of the strangest. I mean, just the idea when he, when Ollie said uh, prescriptions would be changed through a software update. That's one of the coolest statements about technology I've ever heard. Yeah, and I know that like we talked a little bit about the difference between what BIOS is doing and what uh, Neuralink is doing, but there is a little part of me that is just now like speaking to this guest, I just am envisioning the matrix. <laughs> and I know that's not really what they're doing because they're working with the peripheral nervous system rather than directly with the brain. But uh, yeah, there's just a part of me that pictures like plugging myself in and learning Korean instantly. Yeah, absolutely. That, that <laughs> uh, martial arts scene in the matrix was the, the first thing that, that popped into my mind as well. But it, it was so interesting that um, he really just wants to focus on um, on medicine for the foreseeable future. And I think he described it as there being, you know, so much work to be so much important work to be done there before moving elsewhere. And I thought that was really nice. You know, there's there's undoubtedly going to be lots of shiny things elsewhere in this um, mm. space. Uh, but they're just they're trying as much as possible to um, to help those who really really need it. And what was like really interesting with that was to hear somebody speak about chronic um, diseases through the lens of a technologist. You know, they're like, okay, well, how do we remove this out of someone's consciousness? How do we how do we take what is currently a daily or weekly um, uh, job that they have to do to remember their medication and whatnot, and let's push that into the the background for them. And it's, it's just so interesting the way that he was uh, that he was tackling that. I thought it was fantastic. So we haven't really given an update since the lockdown started. How are you guys keeping busy? I've sort of like fallen in and out of love with this weird addiction for American news. Um, it's it's just like proper car crash. And um, I found myself like in the middle of the night, like watching the live um, White House press briefings and just being absolutely oh, terrified wow. by them. This is like maybe four or five days in a row. And then, you know, at the end of it, just having no substantial information and just deciding, right, okay, no, I, like, I have to stop doing this. Like, then I can't affect this situation. And it's just terrifying. Like, why am I watching this? But it's something about it that is like uh, captivating. Well, I've been freaking myself out in other ways. Uh, last night, I took myself outside to stand on my steps, not very far from my house, and watch the uh, Lyrid Meteor Shower or Lyrid Meteor Shower. I don't actually know how to pronounce it. Oh, cool. That. And I also didn't realize that until I nerdily Googled it later that I, I, I saw the Starlink satellite, one of the Starlink satellites crossing over the sky as well. Oh, sick. Cool. Um, oh, cool. And Venus was very, very bright. So I was doing quite a bit of stargazing last night, but I completely freaked myself out because I forgot that whenever I look at the sky too long, I start to get this like existential terror about how tiny we are. <laughs> <laughs> so I was standing out on the on the pavement last night looking at the sky and then suddenly I was like, oh my God, I have to go inside. <laughs> and I, had to, I had to come back in and take deep breaths. So uh, yeah, that's that's how I've been terrifying myself. I, I also went out to try and see it. I like, had my, um, my cup of mint tea, like walked out into the park. <laughs> And sort of like looked up, and even I had them um, some Carl Sagan playing in my earphones. Just yes. I was like, I was trying, oh, I was trying to coax out this perfect moment of serendipity from the universe, and the universe said no and didn't show me any uh, meteorites. But it was quite <laughs> that, nice just to have a midnight cup of tea in the park listening to Carl Sagan. So, you know, it's a, it's that does a, sound lovely. It's the thing about serendipity quakes is you can't coax it. I know, and well, that's not entirely true. It, like, 
that story's for another time. But but yeah, I, <laughs> it, it does very, very, very occasionally happen. Um, and it's magical. But anyway, uh, what I was gonna I was gonna say um, about the um, the kind of agoraphobic effect of looking at um, at the universe. There's this experiment that you can do where you um, lie on the ground at night, and you um, you're looking up into the stars, and you're supposed to uh, put your arms on either side of you and imagine that they're being that they're stuck to the ground with like glue or cement. And you're supposed to do this for like, and you're supposed to imagine that you can't move them and you don't move them for about two or three minutes. You just imagine that you're stuck there, mm. stuck there, stuck there. And then in your mind, you imagine that you're facing downwards and that you're, that the, um, that the earth is, um, that you're stuck um, upside down to the earth and you're looking down into space and the feeling is supposed to hit you like whoa as if you, you know that like falling off a branch feeling that you, that you get like, yeah when you sleep sometimes how is this like helping that. my existential dread oh it's just an awesome thing to, to freak yourself out with i don't know if it helps <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's taking your existential dread for a ride amy <laughs> yeah know? yeah exactly i think it's flooding i think that's what they call it <laughs> oh flooding excellent just what I need. <laughs> I um I want to change topic and tell you about something that I've become completely obsessed with in a, a series of very healthy and very unhealthy ways. So it, it's an, it's actually just an app and it's called Plant Nanny. Okay. And okay. And basically, what you do is you get so it's a you get like a little virtual plant and you can choose between a number of species. And if you as you get as you kind of use the app more and get more points, you can have more interesting species. And then all you have to do is feed it water. So every time you have a cup of water. You, you you click a button and you and you feed this you water this plant right and then as you feed it as you water it more and more it grows and grows and grows but if you don't water enough it can die so it's kind of like a temagotchi yeah. where really it's like incentivizing you encouraging you to drink more water and this has become such a large part of my life now. <laughs> um, i mean inc- i'm incredibly hydrated and have so many feelings for this this it's now a cacti which which is really weird that they chose a cacti because like it's a, one of the most sort of non-water eating species of plant out there or kinds of plant out there i mean maybe that's um, telling you something about your hydration rob yeah exactly or like you know exactly all the kind of kind of life forms i'm attracted to ones that don't really need me um <laughs> but i really recommend it i really recommend it. it it's just again it's a good way of it's a good way of staying hydrated um it, it wants you to drink like three liters of water a day which i never knew i needed that many uh but I definitely recommend it. Just again, be careful not to get too attached. Fair play. How do you feel physically from like the the amount of water that you have? You you feel better for it? I feel good. I honestly, yeah. I think I'm also just doing like just doing a run every day, and I think a combination of the two things, I just feel a lot better. I have a lot more energy, which is good. Like I think because we have to stay indoors a lot more, we have all become sort of a bit more sedentary, or the or the chances are we've become a bit more sedentary. Yeah. And obviously that leads to sort of negative effects, impacts sleep and impacts how much energy you have. So I think I've just made a bit of a conscious effort just to try and reverse some of that damage. And this is one of the ways that I'm doing that. And it's really helpful. Um, and also, I just love it as a good a piece of just little software engineering, just leveraging the whole reward system, creating an emotional connection with this fictitious creature and using it to incentivize healthy behavior. I just, I think it's a brilliant app all around. It's nice um super simple but yeah i just wanted to either shout out to its creators um and just um shout out to my little plant who at the moment is called schmactus schmactus the cactus (laughs) shout out to schmactus 
thank you for listening to this episode of What Comes Next, and a big thank you to our guest, Oliver Armitage, for coming on the show. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review on iTunes? You don't even have to give us five stars. Don't forget to check the show notes for more information about what we've discussed on the show and where to find us online. Thank you again, and see you next time.